Hello girls and boys, welcome to the Children's Story Hour. I'm Dr John and beside me is Auntie Sue. How are you today Auntie Sue? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm so happy to be here for the very first episode of the Children's Story Hour. I know, it's an exciting day. Now boys and girls, because it's our first episode today, I want to tell you briefly about what you're going to hear in the next hour. You're going to hear seven different stories by seven different people who themselves have a story to tell. Also, the authors who wrote these stories have an amazing background, and we'll tell you about them as well. So really, our show is one big, amazing story. Auntie Sue, tell us about the music. Children, every story read on the program has its own music introduction. You need to listen very carefully so you will get to know which story is coming up next. Okay, so let's talk about what these stories are coming up. Uncle Alan will read our very first story, and he is going to read the stories from the very well-known children's author, Arthur Maxwell, from the Uncle Arthur Bedtime Stories. Following this, Auntie Cecily will be reading from her very own book about a lovely little Australian animal that came into her life for a short while. Our third story comes from Uncle Gordon. He's going to tell us of his amazing adventures in the South Pacific Islands as a young pastor and missionary. Auntie Sue, who comes next? Yes, our fourth story is told by a young lady named Sophie Lee. Sophie will read to us from a book that talks about the childhood life of Mrs. Ellen G. White and how God called her to do an amazing work for him. Following this, we will hear through song and story the adventures of Ranger Dan and Mrs. Tammy in the Arctic. Dr. John, what are our last two stories about? Yes, Auntie Nat is going to read us some wonderful stories about Jesus and I'm finishing the lineup with some stories about another well-known children's storyteller, Eric B. Hare, and his adventures doing early mission work in Burma. Now, children, we have some amazing, exciting, extraordinary, and wonderful stories for you to listen to. Auntie Sue, before we begin, can you please say a prayer for us? Yes. Dear Father, thank you for the children who are listening today. Please draw them close as they listen to these stories and warm their hearts. Please keep them safe until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Auntie Sue. Girls and boys, welcome and enjoy the Children's Story Hour. Hi girls and boys, this is Uncle Alan and I have a story for you. Today's story, Grumpy's Gold Watch. Old George looked after the cows, helped father with the ploughing and did all sorts of odd jobs around the farm. He had been with the family a long, long time, years before Carla was born. In fact, he was as much a part of the farm as the barn was. George was a good and faithful workman, but perhaps because he lived on his own, he was gruff. Because he was gruff, people called him, when they thought he couldn't hear, Old Grumpy. Mum and Dad tried to get him interested in the better things of life, 
But George would have none of it. He never went to church, never read his Bible, never said his prayers. In fact, apart from his work, he did not seem to care about anything except his old gold watch. This was a watch with a long gold chain that he kept in his waistcoat pocket. For some reason which no one could ever find out, the gold watch with its big face and broad, solid back was very precious to old George. It was a wind-up watch like all watches made in those days. And George would wind it up at the same hour every night. Often he would pat the pocket where he kept it to make sure it was still there. Wind-up watches did not keep time as well as modern watches. Some of them would be fast and some slow. But old George's watch was always absolutely bang on the right time. TV time might be wrong, but not the time on old George's gold watch. Then one day he lost it. It was the worst disaster that had ever happened to him. From the look on his face when he came into the farmhouse that night, you might have thought he had lost everything worthwhile in the world. It was He was a picture of misery, and everybody felt sorry for him. Where had he lost it? He didn't know. He had been working in the cornfield all afternoon, but whether it was there or in the pasture where he had gone to fetch the cows for milking, he didn't know. It might have been anywhere in the whole 40 acres. I'll never see it again, he said gloomily. It's gone for good this time. Carla thought she saw tears in his eyes as he said it. She felt sad. Even though old George often seemed very cross when she spoke to him, she didn't like to see him hurt so much. That night, just before she went to bed, she went up to him and said, Would you like me to ask God to help you find your watch? No good, he growled, shaking his head. Don't bother your head about it. It's gone for good, I tell you. But I think God does know where it is, insisted Carla. And if I were to ask him... Well, uh, who knows what might happen? Rubbish, muttered old George. Don't you go saying prayers about my watch. That wouldn't do any good. But I'm going to say a prayer about it anyway, said Carla. I'm going to ask God to help me find your watch. And maybe he will. Go on, growled old George. Rubbish. Carla kept her word. Before she went to sleep that night... She asked the Lord to help her find the missing watch. If I should find it for him, she said, it might help him to believe in you, and then he would not be grumpy any more. Next morning was a bright sunny day, and Carla woke up early. She ran down to breakfast. In the kitchen, the whole family was seated around the table, including old George. I know where your watch is, announced Carla. Ha, 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 snorted old George. I'm sure you don't. But I do, cried Carla. I do. Jesus showed me last night. I asked him to, and he did. Go on, growled old George. A pretty story, to be sure. But I don't believe a word of it. It's true. I know it's true, cried Carla. Your watch is in the cornfield. It's away near the end of the fourth row from the hedge, not far from the back of the barn. 
<laughs> laughed old George. How do you know all that? Because I saw it last night in a dream, said Carla. Jesus showed me, and I'm sure it's true. Oh, I don't believe it, I tell you, began old George. Then he stopped. His interest was aroused. There was just one chance in a million that Carla might be right. And oh, how he wanted to find that precious old watch of his. He would even be willing to go on a wild goose chase like this in the hope of finding it. Well, he said, we can soon prove it, can't we? Yes, cried Carla. Let's go right now. Will you come with me and see? All right, said old George. I'll come. But we won't be seeing any watch, I tell you that right now. So off they went, with Carla dragging at old George's hand. They came to the cornfield. They found the fourth row from the hedge. They walked down it to the far end of the field. We're near it, cried Carla. I feel sure we are. This is just what it looked like in my dream last night. Oh, growled old George. There's no watch here, I told you so. Maybe we haven't gone quite far enough, said Carla. Yes, we have, said old George. Too far. I'm going back. Oh, no, no, not yet, not yet, cried Carla. Just a little further. We haven't come to the end of the row yet, and it's somewhere near the end. I know it is. Old George stood still while Carla ran forward. Suddenly, she let out a shout of triumph. Look, look, she cried. There it is. See there, close by the cornstalk. Old George leapt forward. It was his watch, his dear old watch, and in the very place where Carla had said that he would find it. Well, I'll be, he began. But he didn't finish the sentence. Somehow he couldn't say anything bad, not then or ever. Some people say that God no longer answers prayer like that. They work out rules for God and say, this is how you must work. But God doesn't work to our rules. Above all, God delights to reward simple faith. Carla knows that. And so does old George. There in the cornfield, Jesus came into his heart. He was never old grumpy again. Hello, boys and girls. It's Auntie Cecily. I'm so glad you can join me. I'm going to read to you from my book, Libby and His Bush Friends. It's the story of a pet possum that we raised. Chapter 1. Orphan in a Cardboard Box Stop! Stop the bus! cried the children. Their teacher glanced out of the bus window and called to the bus driver. There's a little animal in the middle of the road. He's going to get run over if we don't stop and rescue him. The bus driver stopped near the helpless creature. The teacher instructed the children to wait in the bus for safety 
while she ventured into the middle of the busy road. A row of young heads poked out of the bus windows. It's a baby possum, someone called out. The teacher picked up the confused little fellow and carried him back to the bus. She gently wrapped him in a towel. She looked for the possum's mother in the nearby grass but could not see her anywhere. The baby possum seemed very lost and frightened. When the bus arrived at school, the children reported their find to their school friends with much excitement. Meanwhile, the teacher searched for a suitable box in which to place the possum. She found one with a lid to prevent him from climbing out. The possum was already showing signs of growing restless in the towel. Ouch! cried the teacher as she tried to pick up the possum and place him in the cardboard box. He bit me! The teacher placed the baby possum, towel and all, in the box and closed the lid. There were some holes in the lid that gave him plenty of fresh air to breathe. She put the box on the staff room table for the school principal to find. The teacher then wrote a note in big letters on a piece of paper and taped it to the lid. It read, Danger! Wild animal! Barry, my husband, was the school principal. As he was passing through the staff room, he noticed the box. Looking closer, he read the message on the lid. He had a brief peek inside, then set out to discover what the message and the contents of the box were all about. During the lunch break, the teachers gathered in the staff room and Barry heard the story of the possum's rescue. "'What are you planning to do with him?' asked Barry. "'We thought that you and Cecily might take him home and rear him, because you live in the bush,' said one of the teachers. "'We've only cared for wallabies before. We don't know anything about raising possums. But I guess there's always a first time.' Barry took the box into his office and placed it on his desk. Cecily will get a surprise when she sees what's in the box, he thought to himself. Barry was not in his office when I arrived after work. The box on Barry's desk caught my eye. Being curious, I cautiously lifted the lid and discovered a tiny ball of soft grey fur curled up in the corner of the box. I instinctively put my hand into the box to stroke the baby possum. Ouch! I cried, jerking my hand away from the box. Just then Barry returned to his office. Cecily, didn't you read the note attached to the lid? he laughed. Where did he come from, I asked, taking another peek into the box. A class of children and their teacher found him on a busy road, he explained. But he's ours now. Has anyone thought of a name for him yet, I inquired. One of the teachers thought he should be called Lucky, because she felt he was lucky to be alive. But I think it would be more appropriate to call him Liberty. I don't think he has come into our lives by chance and he will always be free to come and go as he pleases from our home in the bush. Then liberty it is. As an afterthought, I asked, 
Can we call him Libby for short? Why not, was Barry's approving reply. With the formalities settled, I picked up the box and we walked to our car. In reflecting on our new challenge, I was reminded of the text in the Bible that says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 10 first part. We resolved to give the orphaned possum the best care we could in the hope that he would survive without his mother. and girls, it's story time and this is Uncle Gordon to bring you another story from the South Pacific Islands. I must tell you a little bit about my own Christian experience. We lived for many years until I was about 12 where we had no opportunity of going to church but out in the country and we had no means of transport and so I didn't know anything about church going. My parents were belonging to the Anglican Church. But uh, we moved into the north of Victoria, into town where my dad worked as a business manager. And uh, while we were there, I attended uh, the church and was being trained as an altar boy. I asked a question one day to the priest and I wanted to know why Easter was sometimes in March and sometimes in April. And he got angry with me and shook his fist at me and said, if I ask questions like that, I'd end up as a heretic. Well, I didn't know what a heretic meant. I thought it might have been some bad disease, and I didn't want to catch it. But I was afraid to ask any more questions, and uh, with my younger brother, we moved across to the Methodist Church, which was nearby, and started to attend there. We enjoyed that very much because they followed the Bible very closely, my mother came as well. But while there, uh, it was um, many things that I had questions in my mind but was afraid to ask them. Then uh, one day I was uh, asking a question about why Easter is sometimes in March and sometimes in April, and he didn't seem to know the answer. And so I began to look through the Encyclopedia Britannica when I was at school and I discovered there that it was an ancient f- festival for the uh, moon goddess, and uh, that's why we have all the bunny rabbits and eggs and what have you, because she was the uh, goddess of fertility. And when we were at that church, I wanted to know more. And while I was going through the encyclopedia seeking out information, because I didn't know anything about the Bible, I found out that Sunday was the first day of the week and that uh, it was not. It was the day of the sun and that's why it had the name Sunday. Then I got a Bible. They gave me a Bible when I was attending the Methodist Church and as I was reading this uh, Bible, I discovered that um, the seventh day was the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. And I looked on the calendar and every calendar seemed to be the same. Saturday was the Sabbath. And so I wanted to know more about that. Around about this time, there was an elderly lady who lived out in the country uh, on a farm. She used to come round every 
Saturday afternoon and deliver a little newspaper in black and white. It was called Signs of the Times. I enjoyed reading this because it had many answers to my questions. And one day when she was there, I said to her, uh, where does this paper come from? Who, who, which church does it belong to? And she said, the Seventh-day Adventist. Well, I'd never heard of them, never knew what they were about. She said, are you interested? And I said, yes, I'm interested to know things. I'd like to know more about the Bible. I'll get you someone to have Bible studies with you. Well, I was excited about this. And so I waited and three weeks went by and nobody came. And then all of a sudden I was down milking the cows one late afternoon. And in walked this gentleman with a big black suit on and bright shiny shoes and white shirt and black tie. And... Uh, he came close to me while I was milking the cow and he slapped me on the back and said, G'day, son, how are you doing? And I just got knocked off the chair and almost spilled the milk from the bucket. Well, he picked up the bucket, picked up the stool and got down by the cow and started milking it. And I stood up by the front of the cow and I looked at him and I thought, boy, this is the strangest fellow I ever saw. And I said, who are you? He said, I'm a minister. Well, I'd never seen a minister like that before. All the ministers that I ever knew came to our home and had cups of tea and ate all our cookies. Never come down to the cow bales. Well, I thought, well, he's different. I'll see what he says. And so I asked him about this Easter. Why is it sometimes in March and sometimes in April? All we said, and he went on, and he tried, just as I'd read in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Oh, I thought, that's all right. He didn't, be, he didn't get angry with me or anything. So I tried again. I said, now, what about this uh, Sabbath? Is that on Sunday or some other day? Oh, he's... He quoted the Ten Commandments. When he's milking the cow, he's milking away at the cow, and he can't remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, six days out there labour and so on. And when he had finished it, and I was standing a little close to the head of the cow by this because I was afraid he might get angry with me, I said, well, if the seventh day is the Sabbath, why don't we keep it? And he stopped milking and he turned around and he looked at me straight in the eye and he said, I do. And I learned then that he was a Seventh-day Adventist. And uh, he kept the Sabbath. And then he said, would you like to have Bible studies? And I said, well, that's what I'm here for. So he started to give us Bible studies. And we thoroughly enjoyed those Bible studies. As a matter of fact, we were, we were in high school at this time. And every Monday he'd be there at the park just down from the school. And we'd run out at lunchtime, sit in the park, and he would teach us, my brother John and myself. And finally he persuaded us that what he was teaching was from the Bible and truth, and we were baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church back in 1943. And uh, I was only 14 years of age. My brother John was three years younger than me. And later on, my mother was baptized also, which was a wonderful blessing. It took my father eight years before he finally surrendered and gave in. One of my sisters also became an Adventist. One of my younger other brothers, he became an Adventist. So much of the family, and we, I came from a family of seven, but uh, not all accepted the Sabbath message. But, but John and I have become missionaries to the South Pacific, and I believe it was because that pastor who was a retired minister, he had the courage to come down and sit down and milk a cow with me and uh, talk with me and give us Bible studies. 
uh, I learned the truth and I've never wanted to deviate from it. The Lord was desirous of making me a missionary. And for some years, I worked hard to not raise enough money to get into Avondale College. And for that was in 1946 I arrived at Avondale College. And I was 1950 when I graduated. It was very difficult at times to raise the money because I did get, I got no help from my family at all. What I had to do was to work uh, as much as I could at the college. In those days, the uh, income was 10 cents an hour. But finally, I graduated and I expected to become a missionary straight away. But they had other ideas. I was sent up to Queensland where I became... Uh, a coal porter looking after sales of God's literature. I was up in the area of Nambour and I worked hard there but it was a drought on and it was very, very difficult and I found it difficult to raise the funds. And so I left coal portering at the end of the year and tried all, all the so sorts of jobs because I wasn't picked up in the work at all. I looked after the Andina Church and been a part of them, but I'd received no funds because my income was only from the sale of books. I finally gave in and went teaching for the government, and I taught for the government for five years. But then the Lord had not forgotten me. Eventually the call came. In 1959, I received a call. Would I come and become a teacher in Samoa, in the South Pacific Islands? The Lord has a calling for each one of us. He's got a calling for you. And if you listen carefully, he'll give you that reward. But he'll prepare you for it. God bless you. My name is Sophie Lee and I'm going to read you a book called Ellen, The Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Over the next 13 weeks, we are going on a journey together to learn about the childhood life of Mrs. Ellen G. White. Chapter 1. Little Ellen's Home I have something special to tell you this morning, Papa Harmon said from his chair at the head of the long table. The four Harmon children on each side of the table stopped eating to listen. Papa smiled at Mama at the other end of the table, but I'll save the surprise until breakfast is over. When their bowls and plates were cleared, the children waited patiently. They knew what would come next. Papa opened his Bible and read some verses, then prayed for the family, especially for each of his children. After he said amen, he looked around at his big family and smiled. When you finish your chores this morning, you may go play at the old Indian fort. Ellen, four years old, looked at Mama, who smiled and nodded. Ellen came off her chair so fast she nearly fell, then started jumping up and down. As she jumped, she yelled, We'll play Indians! Ooh la la la! Ooh la la la! Right away, her twin Elizabeth jumped down and joined the pretend war dance. Long before the settlers at their tiny village of Gorham had built the fort to protect themselves from Indians. The children heard many stories about the brave pioneers looking for new homes. They also heard about the brave Indians who thought they had to protect themselves from all the pale faces invading their homeland. Father smiled at their excitement. I'll call you when it's time to come home, he said. The eight Harmon children hurried to do their jobs so they could go play. 
Six-year-old Robert washed the dishes, swept the porch and fed the dog. While he did that, Sarah, who was nine, fed and watered the chickens and gathered the eggs. Mary, 11 years old, made all the beds and swept upstairs. John, tall and strong at 15, ran to do the barn and put fresh hay in the stalls for the cows and horses. Then he pumped water from the well for the animals and carried several large buckets to the kitchen. Harriet, nearly grown at 17, picked a basket of peas, shelled them for dinner and scrubbed potatoes to put in the oven. Carolyn, the oldest at 19, decided she was too old to play at the fort, so she stayed home to mend socks, iron clothes and help with dinner. The twins, Ellen and Elizabeth, were four and had the easiest jobs of all. They dried the dishes and set the table for dinner. Everyone hurried, but Ellen and Elizabeth finished first. While they waited for their big brothers and sisters, they found some long strips of paper. Let's make Indian headdresses, Ellen said. They covered Indian designs on the paper and fitted them around each other's heads. Now all we need are some feathers, Elizabeth decided. Let's use those turkey feathers we saved. With the big turkey feathers stuck into their bands, the twins felt like real Indians. When the seven children reached the park around the fort, no one wanted to be a settler. Let's all be Indians, John suggested. Remember, Indians can walk silently through the forest. Hiding behind trees and bushes as they sneaked toward the fort, Ellen and Elizabeth tried to move as quietly as possible. The longer they played and ran, the hotter and thirstier Ellen felt. Maybe this game isn't as much fun as I remembered, she thought. Finally, the children reached the fort where the white people had hidden long ago. And to their surprise, they found a real pale face there. Carolyn, Ellen cried, you surprised us. Then she noticed the pail in her sister's hand. And he brought us water to drink. Ellen thought she couldn't wait for her turn. But as soon as Elizabeth drank, Carolyn gave her a big dipperful. The seven Indians lay on the fresh green grass, resting and drinking until all the good water disappeared. Lying there in the warm sunshine made Ellen sleepier and sleepier. Just as her eyes were closing, she heard a faraway voice calling, Dinner's ready! Papa! Ellen said suddenly. Papa's calling. Let's go! Ellen jumped up and they hurried home, hungry for some of Mama's good food. The Harmon family lived happily on the farm for several more years. Then one morning, Papa had another announcement to make. I want you children to pack your things into the boxes I am making, he said. We're moving into a town 12 miles from here. We'll still live in Maine, except our new home is in a town called Portland. Move? Ellen could hardly imagine that. She loved the farm. Why, Papa? Why do we have to leave our farm? She asked as the tears began to squeeze out of her eyes. I love Bossy and the horses. I love the dogs too. Snowy white 
heart We'll find out why it's so God put animals in the snow And just where they were chosen To live amongst the frozen We'll meet the frozen Chosen Animals Animals? Animals Animals on the ice Good morning, Ranger Dan. Good morning, Mrs. Tammy. Boy, it's a bit chilly this morning, Ranger Dan. I didn't think that it would be this cold here at base camp. Oh, yes, Mrs. Tammy. Even though we aren't actually out in the snow, as you can tell, the air here is just as frosty. Wish I could warm myself up a bit. Why don't you try blowing in your hands, Mrs. Tammy? I know that always helps to warm me up. Okay, Ranger Dan. I'll give it a go. Blow in your hands And wave a warm hello Put a smile on your face To set your heart aglow Then shake the hand of someone next to you And give them a great big warm hello Blow in your hands And wave a warm hello Put a smile on your face To set your heart aglow Then shake the hand of someone next to you And give them a great big warm hello That feels a bit better, Ranger Dan, but I don't think that I can keep blowing in my hands all day and every time I stop, they get cold again. Ranger Dan, you must know something about being warm from the inside because you don't even have a warm hat on. Well, Mrs. Tammy, I'm glad you asked. I happen to know the absolute surefire way to stay warm on the inside. And me trusty Akubra hat here will help to remind you of what it is. You see, I never go out on any expedition, even up here in the Arctic, without me trusty Akubra hat. And there's something else that I never go out without. Do you want to know what it is? I sure do, Ranger Dan. But please tell me quickly, because my toes are cold now too. I never go out without asking Jesus to live in my heart, and that warms me up. How does that warm you up? Well, Mrs. Tammy, when Jesus lives in your heart, he lights a fire deep inside, and a fire from heaven will keep you warm no matter where you are or how cold it is outside. Oh, yes, Ranger Dan, that is a perfect idea. Let's do that right now. I want Jesus to light a fire in my heart and warm me up on the inside. You can be warm on the inside when it's cold on the outside. If Jesus lives deep inside of you, yes, you'll be warm on the inside when it's cold on the outside. Because Jesus lights a fire deep inside your heart. Dear Father in heaven, Please come and light a fire in our hearts today so that your love can warm us up on the inside. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Boys and girls, Auntie Nat here. It's wonderful you could join us today. Over the next 13 weeks, we are going on a journey together to learn about the life of Jesus through the Bible. Who was he? 
What did he do here on this earth? And who is he to you? That's what we're going to discover together. So I want you to follow along with me with your Bibles. So remember to have your Bibles ready when you hear the introductory music to Auntie Nat's segment. So are you ready? I'm reading out of the New King James Version, and I'm using the Remnant Young Scholar Study Bible. We use these on our TV program, A Day with the King, and the kids really enjoy reading from these. So here we go. Today we are starting in the book of Luke. Luke is the second book of the New Testament, and today we are starting in chapter 1, and we're starting at verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. Now, boys and girls, the Bible uses a word that we probably wouldn't use today as it's a little bit harsh, the word barren. And this is used in the Bible to explain that a woman cannot have a baby. Let's continue in verse 8. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division. Now, boys and girls, I'll just give you a little background information about this. Um, Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in the hill country of Judea, which actually wasn't too far from Jerusalem. And Zacharias being a Levite, it was his responsibility twice a year to be called up to the temple to serve. And he usually went up for about a week at a time. And so this is what's happening now. He's up for his week, his roster. He's been called up um, to come in and, and to work there for a week. So let's continue in verse 9. According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, boys and girls, we are told that to be called to actually go inside the tabernacle and, and to work inside and to burn incense was a very rare thing to happen. There were lots and lots of jobs to do up at the temple. And um, this was an amazing opportunity for Zacharias to go in and to burn incense on the altar. So let's continue in verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Now, boys and girls, when an angel appears inside the tabernacle and he's on the right side, it means that he, the angel is showing favour. And Zacharias forgot about this, and it says in verse 12 that he was troubled. But he really shouldn't have been troubled because he should have remembered that the angel appearing on the right side was actually showing him favour. Let's continue in 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. Oh, boys and girls, here's Zacharias doubting again. Do you know, there's a story in the Old Testament about Abraham and Sarah and how in their old age... God allowed them to have a baby. And Zacharias would have been aware of this, but again he forgot. Let's read in 19. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So boys and girls, because Zacharias was actually talking to an angel, the glory of the angel just permeated onto Zacharias and his face was glowing, just like when Moses would come down from Mount Sinai after speaking to God. It must have been an amazing experience. Let's um, continue in verse 23. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now boys and girls, Zacharias and Elizabeth had been waiting and praying for many years for a baby. And can you imagine their their joy and excitement of being told by the angel Gabriel that they would have a baby boy? Now, also, too, Zacharias had been praying for many years that he would see or that the Saviour would actually come. He'd been reading about the prophecies and he knew the Messiah would be coming soon. And here they were. They were going to have a baby who would be the forerunner of Jesus. John was going to tell the world about Jesus to come. What an exciting thing for them. Boys and girls, like Zacharias and Elizabeth, are you praying for Jesus? Are you praying for Jesus to come into your heart? Hello boys and girls, it's Dr. John here and I have some wonderful stories for you today. Many years ago, when I was a boy, I met an old man who stood up and told a story, and I have never heard a storyteller better than Eric B. Hare. He was a missionary in Burma for many years, a long time ago. In fact, almost a 100 years ago. You'll love these stories, even though some of the words might be a little bit old-fashioned. He was a master storyteller. Well, let's begin at the beginning. And this one is called Arriving. Oh, just look at that. I heard my wife exclaim, isn't it beautiful? I ran around to her side of the boat and found quite a number of people looking out across the water. We had been traveling for 21 days. 
And it was only last night that we anchored in the mouth of the Rangoon River. At last, we were arriving in Burma. Today, we call it Myanmar, the land of pagodas. Now, a pagoda is a very tall temple. We wondered what it would be really like. We had read so much since the call had come to us in sunny Australia that now we were here. We wanted to see all we could as soon as we could, so we were up very, very early to catch the first glimpse. What is it? I called out as I joined the group. But I needed no answer, for there, towering above the dark fringe of coconut trees that lined the bank, rose the golden pagoda, the largest in Burma. The early dawn was reflected from it and lent a beautiful tint to the form which reared itself up like a huge church spire, only larger at the base. The first sunbeams painted it with a brilliance that made it outshine all other visible objects. We had never seen anything like this before. It was the golden pagoda. We were at last in Burma. That day, we saw many more interesting sights than we had ever seen before. When we were met at the boat, we were taken with our luggage into funny-looking cabs called garis. The driver was a barefooted, half-dressed Indian, and though we didn't want to be mean, we did have to laugh when we compared him with our taxi drivers at home. After a lot of noise and gabble, we at last started for the mission house. And oh, the things we saw. The policemen with big turbans and big brass numbers, the postmen, the streetcars with their drivers and conductors, all barefooted, the almost naked coolies, the Purda women, the Indian merchants wearing their shirts outside their trousers, the rickshaws, the motor cars, the hand carts, and the bullock carts, Chinese, Indians, Burmese and Englishmen all jammed together, rushing around like a holiday parade. I couldn't comprehend things quickly enough and felt that the yelling and the noise meant trouble. How the drivers got through those streets without being killed or without killing somebody puzzled me. Bzzzt, bzzzt, sounded a big car horn behind us. Bzzzt, bzzzt, it came nearer. Why doesn't the driver go over to the side? There will be a terrible smash soon. Bzzzt, bzzzt, bzzzt. And I put my head out of the window to try and yell out something to the driver to warn him of the danger just in time to see an almost naked coolie boy passing us on a bicycle with his hand on a huge horn buzzing away with a pleased grin all over him. Then I understood a little, but such a little, for the East will never be really understood by the West. There were men with their heads all shaved except a little tuft of hair on the crown, others shaved to the crown, Others had only a little square shaved. Some had long hair. Some had top knots. Some had fringes. Well, now and then we saw a man who had never had a haircut or a shampoo since he was born. And the dirty, frizzled, matted, tangled mass of what he thought was holy hair gave us the shivers. 
Some men had full beards. Some had beards that were just starting. Some were clean-shaven, while some had pulled out all their whiskers, except for a dozen or so big hairs sprouting from a mole. Some men wore trousers trimmed with lace. Some wore loincloths made of silk, while the coolies generally wore a necktie and a bit of string. There were big shops and little shops and markets in abundance, street stalls, travelling stalls and all other kinds of stalls. And there were big restaurants, little restaurants and travelling restaurants. There was anything and everything all mixed up, all in a jam, yet going, yelling, singing, talking, laughing, bowling, praying every hour of the day, every day of the month, every month of the year, ever, always, without end, continually, forever. It was delightful to be in Burma. We had been looking forward to it for some time. We had read and pictured Burma in our minds, but it was all so different. We saw so much that first day that we felt dizzy. And though before retiring, our friends told us the house was haunted and that we might hear some funny noises, we weren't afraid of ghosts. So we went to sleep. Sometime before morning, I was wakened by a terrible guttural noise. It said, I sat up. My wife was awake too. My hair was on end and the cold perspiration was standing out all over me. Why don't the others get up? I wonder if it's a ghost. It was right in our room, but we couldn't see it. I thought I'd get up, but... What was that? It had stopped. Everyone in the house must have heard that, but no one stirred. It must have been the ghost. So we wiped off the perspiration and lay down again in the morning. We were surprised indeed to find out it was not a ghost, but a lizard. The horrid things. They are called tuktus from their call. Special thanks go to Pacific Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read on air a selection from Jungle Stories, written by Eric B. Hare, and Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Also, thanks goes to Stanborough Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read a selection of stories from the set of books called Uncle Arthur's Best Bedtime Stories. And thanks to Remnant Publications for permission to read the Remnant Young Scholar Study Bible on air. We would also like to thank Daniel and Tammy Cinzio for allowing us to play their CD Frozen Chosen on air. For any other information about the Children's Story Hour, you can contact us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au.
The Bible tells me lots of things, and it tells me Jesus loves me. Think 
You heard Jesus is Beautiful and Whatsoever Things Are True by Gavin Chitalia and the Children. And before that, Auntie Cecily sang Jesus Loves Me. Well, boys and girls, we have come to the end of the Children's Story Hour. On behalf of Auntie Sue, I would like to say goodbye, God bless you, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of the Children's Story Hour.